Would you like to accelerate your career and reach your full potential in just minutes a day? Welcome to the LeadX Show with New York Times bestselling author and Inc. 500 entrepreneur, Kevin Cruz. How can we ensure that our teams innovate and stay competitive? Hello, everyone. Kevin Cruz here. And in just a minute, we're going to talk about how to navigate this disruptive age that we're all in. But first, congratulations on being the CEO of your own career. Content people seek entertainment while ambitious people seek out education. Welcome to the LeadX show. Do me a favor, let your friends and family members know, this is what you already know, that LeadX is the smartest way to start your day. And also free for you, don't forget to download our ebook, Richard Branson's Seven Secrets to Leadership. You can get that at leadx.org forward slash Branson. And today's quick career tip is Google Alerts. Now, if you don't know anything about Google Alerts, this is an easy one and a powerful one. This is like having your own personal news editor, your own custom news service. Now, you do need a Gmail account or a Google account, but that's that's free. And once you set that up, go to alerts.google.com and you can type in the names of any topics you want to track, uh, any competitors you want to keep an eye on, anything you want. And then you choose either once a day or once a week. Google will scoop up those mentions and deliver it to you in your email inbox. So if you're in sales, you can set up a Google alert for each of your clients or maybe even your competitors. If you're a consultant or an author, you could even set up Google alerts on your own name. So you'll be notified when a blogger or someone has mentioned you or the quote unquote competition. I often put in other keynote speakers that I want to follow because I look to see which events they're speaking at and whether I might be a good fit for those events in the future. The tip of the day is Google Alerts. Now, our guest today is a popular writer, speaker, and innovation advisor whose work has appeared in Harvard Business Review, Forbes, Fast Company, Inc., and other A-list publications. We're going to talk to him about his new book, Mapping Innovation, a Playbook for Navigating a Disruptive Age. Our guest is Greg Sattel. Greg, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Kevin. I'm looking forward to it, and we're going to talk about mapping innovation in just a minute, but I always start with the same first question. Will you share a time with our listeners when you actually failed? What did you learn from it so we can learn as well? That would have to be – it's a good question, by the way. Uh, That would have to be uh, after our IPO in Kiev. We really got out over our skis. We felt that there was pressure – from the investors to uh, invest our new resources. Uh, and we ended up launching four major new products in uh, a single year. And that year was 2008. Mm. So it wasn't a wise move to start with, but the timing was obviously very, very bad. And I remember first quarter 2009, the uh, the ad market in in Ukraine dropped by 85%. Wow. So we, uh, I had to completely restructure the company in about 36 hours at one point. Had to fire, I think it was 150 people in a single day. And it was, as you can imagine, incredibly painful that I had to stand up in front of all these people who were good people, worked hard, and tell them they no longer had jobs because I made a mistake. So that was was really a, a, a good learning experience and, and still kind of haunts me to this day that 
that, um, you know, it's really, really important to, to manage risks. I think there's so much ethos to be a risk taker. But the companies that I studied, uh, they always had risk at the top of their mind, not how important it is to take risk, although that is important, but how important it is to manage risk and not to bet the entire farm on a single idea. Yeah, that's that's an incredible uh, story, Greg. In 2008, clearly was a tough time for for everybody and took out so many businesses. Uh, and what your uh, your day of having to lay off so many people reminded me. My similar story was back in '99 when uh, our startup was high flying and and uh, filed to go public. We were only months away, and then the dot com crash happened. And literally, there were people that we had hired in the previous month that I then had to let go with with no notice. I mean, it was just devastating. And uh, as you say, hopefully, I mean, we can't control can't control some of those outlier variables, but we can control how big a bet we're making at any at any one time. Yep, dead people don't innovate. There you go. I like that. Maybe that's the title of your next book. <laughs> so, Greg, the book we're talking about today, though, is Mapping Innovation, a playbook for navigating a disruptive age. So innovate or die. You know, this has been uh, a focus of so many people. It's been the drumbeat of business for a while. And we were talking a little bit of, uh, before we went we went to record this show that even, you know, in, in my past, I, it's like I find I follow shiny objects. Of course, I want to be innovative. And so, you know, I'll read one book will tell me one thing and then another book will tell me another thing. I was a big proponent. Well, I still like like an approach like Lean Launchpad. Um, but, you know, you say there's a fundamental flaw with any one of these types of solutions. So tell me about that. What's the big idea here? Well, like a lean launch pad, which comes out of the work of people like um, Steve Blank and Alex Osterwalder and the business model canvas, um, all really great ideas if you're looking to start a new business, even if it's not a, an actual startup, even if you're launching a new product or a new business within a larger organization. It's absolutely a fantastic way to, to go about things. Um, even the federal government is using it. Uh, Congress just passed an act that sort of mandates its use within the scientific programs. It's not going to help you scale a product. It's not going to help you cure cancer. It's not going to help you solve a really, really tough problem. It's just not what it's there to do. Other things like let's say design thinking, right. uh, which you know, is a fantastically successful methodology. And Apple, for instance, is a big design thinking company, uh, IDEO, um, the Stanford D School. Uh, really, really important ideas there. Very, very important methodologies. But it's not going to help you if your problem isn't well-defined. It depends on having a well-defined problem. And if you don't, design thinking isn't isn't going to work for you very well. So let me let me interrupt for a second, Greg, because you just I think said said it's the two words like it depends. So with all of these things, Skunks Works, Design Thinking, Lean Launchpad, you're acknowledging, yeah, they work really well here and here and here, and here's who's using them. But if you try to use it, it depends on, right? So so what's the answer to that? If no if we can't be sure that any one of them is going to be our solution, what do we do? Well, I'd say it's even more than that. I'd say the way organizations get stuck is when they say 
this is how we innovate. This is in our mm. DNA. And it works for a while. Sometimes it can work for a long while. But eventually, they're going to have to solve a problem that doesn't fit into that bucket. So what you want to do is you first want to focus on what kind of problem you have and then start thinking about how you're going to solve it. It makes no sense to start with your solution approach before you even know what kind of problem it is or haven't really thought through what problem it is. So I would say just simply that. Think about the problem first and then the solution, not the other way around. That makes a lot of sense. And in your book, you provide, now this is what's really hard to do in a, in a podcast when people can't see it, but you introduce something that's called the innovation matrix. Try to describe, you know, for our listeners, <laughs> use word pictures to describe what this matrix is, what it looks like. Well, it's actually pretty simple. You just ask yourself two very simple questions. How well is the problem defined and how well is demand defined? So if you have a well-defined problem and a well-defined domain, that's a sustaining innovation or what a lot of people call a incremental innovation. And they call it that quite derisively. But, <laughs> but that's where most of your value is going to come from. But often, one of those two things isn't very well-defined. Sometimes, for instance, you have a very, very well-defined problem. You just can't figure out how to solve it. Uh, and when that happens, you have to iterate the solution space with usually some kind of open innovation strategy. Uh, sometimes you have a uh, very well-defined solution set, but you have to go out, go out and figure out what the problem is. So like Airbnb or Uber, very basic, very well-known technology, but they went and found a new problem to apply it to and obviously built great businesses. Experian Data Labs does the same thing, actually. They have it's a separate unit within this big company, Experian, that uh, is stocked with these data scientists, and they, they don't have a P&L. They, um, they don't have revenue targets or anything like that. Their one mission is to go out and find new problems to solve. Mm -hmm. um, and then the last uh, quadrant is when neither – the problem or the skills demand is, is well-defined. And that's really in the realm of basic research. And one of the interesting things was what I found in my research of companies is that is probably the most underutilized area and the most important area. If you look at companies like IBM or Microsoft, who, let's face it, have their shortcomings as – operators. They're not particularly agile or anything like that. But they're still around and they're still competing and they're still building exciting new products 40 or 50 years in, in Microsoft's case and over 100 years in IBM's case. Because, you know, if you're exploring and you're finding new things and you're working on things and thinking about the long term, uh, you don't have to be that fast or agile if you have a 10-year head start. I mean, that's why Microsoft's doing so well in the cloud. They started around 2000. Or why IBM's doing so well with Watson. They started that in 2004, 2005, somewhere around there. Yeah, it's it's interesting on that basic research uh, quadrant. And, and <laughs> this is something that nobody knows about my, my background. It's not like on my LinkedIn. But I worked for four years at 
AT&T Bell Labs. And uh, the reason why it's not on LinkedIn is I got my job there when I was 17, worked there from 17 to 21. I was just doing grunt work. So it wasn't like I was a researcher, but um, I was in Murray Hill, New Jersey, for those who the Bell Labs people out there. But it was amazing to be in that environment and to, and of course, being a kid, I had no idea what was going on, but I can remember my first year with all these smart people thinking like, well, what are you doing this for? Like I kept wanting to know what the product was going to be. And that was not what they were doing. They weren't concerned with commercialization. You know, the people I was uh, talking to and some of it was the, the AI lab. I mean, they were doing fundamental basic research, which eventually, in fact, my boss was the guy who uh, owns the patent for voice over IP. So certainly things were commercialized, but that wasn't the the day-to-day thought or approach. It was just this fundamental research. And I worry that, you know, there's just less and less of that you know, happening, except for maybe the, the super wealthy companies, the Googles, the Apples, et cetera. Yeah. What's amazing about the basic research is how consistently good the ROI is. Just in terms of ROI, it's probably the the best thing you can do. It takes a long time, but it's almost like a sure bet that if you invest into it, it's going to pay off. The other thing, which if I had any advice for like small business owners or, you know, companies that, you know, aren't in this Fortune 500 or aren't billion dollar companies, I would say that the most important thing that they could do is focus on that exploration piece because that's that's where you can really really pull in front of your competitors and there are so many resources out there for small and medium-sized companies uh there are government resources uh the manufacturing hubs um the uh most of the big programs like the joint center for energy storage research which is exploring next generation batteries they have affiliate programs that cost you know either nothing or more like a chamber of commerce membership than like a hospital wing um also big companies they have you see what what IBM is doing with Watson or, you know, a lot of big companies now that are building big technologies, they don't want, you know, they'll make a couple of big bets, but they understand that there's a lot more value than they can pursue. So they love the idea of partnering with small companies and being almost like the electricity company or some utility where they build the base technologies and then let you know, hundreds or thousands of other companies go out and figure out all the different business models. And the last thing, and Jeff Welzer, the guy who runs IBM's lab out in in Silicon Valley, uh, he came up with a great point. He said that local universities can be a great resource because they understand where the technology is going and nobody talks to them. So to build relationships, to invite local professors in fields that are important to your industry to come in to lecture, um, to experiment with data that you might have in your company, to have a source where they can find interesting research problems is actually an amazing resource and really doesn't cost you anything because A, academics aren't in it for the money anyway, and B, there are always starved for, for resources. So even contributions in kind, like 
you know, to be able to have a place to present or to have a little help with uh, transportation or something like that. Uh, you can really build those deep relationships. And actually, when I talk to VCs who invest in really the cutting-edge technologies, stuff like CRISPR, the, the genomics technology, that's what they do. They try and get close to the researchers and build and network and build those relationships. I hadn't thought about any of those ways that small to mid-sized companies can very affordably you know, get more, more innovative. I, I want to ask you, this is a little bit tangential, but like taking it even down further to the level of the individual. You know, if I'm a if I've got a 10 or 15 person software company, well, this is what happened. I mean, my, my previous companies, when they were really small, sometimes I'd be frustrated. Like, why am I the guy who's always coming up with the new idea? Or why am I the guy who just read this journal article that applies to, to what we're doing? So in terms of, and this might have more to do with creativity and ideation than innovation, but what can you do to tap into that or to release it in your team members? Do you have to hire, you know, innovative people to get innovation? Is it, you got to give them that 10% time? Do you have to align their compensation? I mean, what would be your approach? Well, it's interesting because I had that question as well. It's one of the reasons I, I, I wrote the book because I couldn't see any commonality between any innovators. Um, they all seem to do things different way. I would say two things. The most important thing and the one that they all had in common was this exploration piece mm. that you shouldn't be looking for great ideas. You should be looking for good problems. And there's no – I didn't find any commonalities in any kind of brainstorming technique or organizational structure or agility or anything like that, anything that you hear all the time. What they did do is they had a systematic and disciplined way of – identifying new problems. And if you find a good problem, the creativity tends to come. However you get there, it tends to come. So that's the first thing. I would say, um, you know, if, if you're a person in a big corporation and you feel like, you know, how can I innovate? I don't have license. What you can do is you can go find a problem that's worth solving, that needs solving. And the second thing, ironically... And this wasn't as universal, but I would say the vast majority of companies built a very collaborative culture. Mm. And you don't need the best people. You need the best teams. And, and there's certain metrics. There's a lot of research that's come out over the past five or ten years. Uh, things like social sensitivity, things like whether people speak in, in roughly equal terms or if there's one or two people dominating the conversation. Right. Google just did a study on safe spaces, whether people feel comfortable sharing a maybe a little bit nutty idea or whether they're scared of speaking up because they feel they'll, they'll be instantly rebuked. Right. Um, so I would say those two things, you know, find a good problem and uh, really push that team approach in collaborative culture and try and push out this idea that prima donnas innovate because as best as I can see that it's, it's really just the opposite. Even the top scientists, you said you worked at Bell Labs, I think 30 years ago, there was a great study of what made the star engineers at Bell Labs 
what made them so much better than anybody else. And really the key thing was the connections they had to the others in the lab. They knew if they came up with a, if they needed a piece of information, they knew where to get it. And they did that because they had built those connections and built those links and because they had been generous and they were good listeners. So they were able to to pull on those relationships and know where that important nugget of information or insight was because they had the relationships with the people who, who, who had those ideas. Makes sense. Now, Greg, I always ask our listeners to become a little bit better every single day. I say just become 1% better every single day, change your life. So can you challenge us, like give us something specific that we can do before the end of the workday to become more innovative ourselves or more creative ourselves? I'm going to sound like a broken record, (laughs) but go out and find a good problem. It's not about ideas. Nobody cares what ideas you have. They care what problems you can solve. So go out and find a problem worth solving. Great. Great advice. Great challenge. So, Greg, I want to thank you for coming on to the LeadX show. Tell our listeners how they can find out more about you and your work. Uh, The best place is on my website, digitaltonto.com. There's a newsletter there you can sign up for. And, of course, in my book, Mapping Innovation, uh, which is on Amazon and in bookstores right now. Is there a story behind the words digital Tonto? <laughs> there is a story, but I'll leave that for another time. <laughs> You're going to be guaranteed that I'll have you back in a few months so we can hear that story. <laughs> Friends, you've just been mentored by none other than Greg Sattel. Don't forget you can get links and notes from this interview over at leadx.org. And you can get Greg's book on amazon.com or your favorite bookstore. And that's it for today's episode of the LeadX Show. Please subscribe to the LeadX Show on iTunes and leave a rating and review. It's only going to take you a minute, but it's the best way you can help us to build the LeadX tribe. Until next time, remember, leadership is... It's about influence, not power or authority. And you're influencing people with your words and also your silence. Leadership is not a choice. We are all leaders. Lead with intent. 